This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions and conclusions. Please talk to your healthcare team regarding your specific situation. Hello, and welcome to the Speak Gano podcast. This is me, Gutenfelder. On today's episode, we have a special guest and friend of mine, Julie Schrell, who is an ovarian cancer survivor. Julie and I met through our advocacy work, one of which is Survivors Teaching Students, a program through OCRA, the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance. And it's a program where we share our stories of diagnosis and treatment to third-year medical students in hopes that it will lead to earlier detection and diagnosis in their future patients because there is no screening test for ovarian cancer. When you hear Julie's story, I know that you will find it both powerful as well as eye-opening. And Julie recently celebrated her 10-year survivorship, which is a really big deal. I am so happy for you, Julie, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nee. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so, so glad that we met through Survivor's Teaching Students because you just are such a special person and I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here for you. Thank you so and to much. to tell my story. So Julie, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and take us back to the beginning of how your story started. Okay, I am 58 years old, which I can't believe. And <laughs> i born and raised in Dallas. I'm the only daughter of my parents who were both only children. I have two brothers. I'm married. I have three children of my own. I've been married almost 31 years and we still live in Dallas. And about, well, my whole life, I knew that my dad's mom, uh, my mama, had had breast cancer because she had this horrible mastectomy. And, you know, she it was down to her rib cage and she had a big prosthesis. And so anytime you'd see her in a bra, you saw that big old thing. And so you just knew that's what it was from. Mm-hmm. And then when, it, as, when I became an adult, she had a second battle of it when she was in her 80s. So I was an adult. I, I knew what she was doing. I drove her to the hospital and she said, I know it's cancer again. I said, no, it's not. It can't be. You know, 30 years later, it can't be. Well, it was. And so in about 2002, I turned 40 and I started getting really, she had passed away and I started getting really worried that I was going to get breast cancer, especially being the only daughter of her only child. So like, you know, it, of course it would come to me. And every time I would go to the doctor, they would ask kind of like, anyone in your family have cancer? And I'd say, yeah, my dad's mom. And they said, oh, we look at your mom's side of the family. So about that time, um, and I have, my daughters are twins and I had some friends who had multiples who were starting to get breast cancer. And I started thinking, my God, here it comes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to the to breast surgeon and I said, I got to know if I'm going to get breast cancer and how I can keep from getting it. And she said, okay, fine, here, take this piece of paper and go fill out this questionnaire and bring it back to me. So I went into a little uh, exam room and I filled it out and came back, I handed it to her and she called me a couple weeks later and said, no worries, you're not at risk. I'm like, awesome, I never have to think about this whole thing again. And that was just around the time that the BRCA test was coming out, had come out. I kind of had known about it, but, you know, I wasn't at risk, so it didn't really matter. And they weren't looking at my dad's side of the family, so it really didn't matter. If I fast forward to when I was 46, because my, my twins were premature, I went to a doctor who is a high-risk specialist, and he always did transvaginal ultrasound. So he did that when I was you know, at my regular appointment, and he said, you know, 
oh, you might want to think about a hysterectomy. And I was like, why? I wasn't having any problems. I wasn't, my tubes were tied after my son was born. My periods lasted like two or three days. I didn't have any cramps. I mean, I didn't have any problems. And he said, well, you've got these cysts in your ovaries and these fibroids in your uterus. And, you know, your grandmother did have breast cancer. And I'm like, well, I I still don't see any compelling reason to have a hysterectomy at 46 and throw myself into premature menopause if I don't, if there's no reason, I just, I don't see it. And so... And so he told me to come back during the third through fifth day of my period, and he would do another ultrasound, which I did, and he did, and they had slept off and moved on. Well, I was I went to see him every August. It just seemed to be the time. And the next year, when it was about time for me to go and see him again, my dad passed away. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't know where that year went. I really don't. Um, but about so I didn't go back. So about six months after that, I started kind of having these weird things start to happen if I look back on it. Mm-hmm. And by July, the next year, I started, I, I woke up one day and I had, I felt like something was absolutely taking root in my abdomen. Like I could feel it spreading and it was so uncomfortable, but I mean, I still got my period every month like I had always done. And Everything was pretty much the same, except I was very constipated. I had, I would have nights where I would go to bed and I'd have to get up and pee and I'd go back to bed and I'd have to get up and pee again. And I'd go back to bed, you know, like two or three times. And my husband and I would look at each other and start laughing. Like, okay, I just did this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really tired. I started losing my appetite a little bit, but I was also under a lot of stress. So I didn't really think that much about it until I got a UTI. So I called my doctor back up and I said, okay, I know I haven't been here in two years, but I think I have a UTI. And they said, well, come on in. Let's get rid of that. And, you know, we haven't seen you in a couple of years. Let's get rid of the UTI and then we'll do your annual again. And I said, fine. And I kind of told them how I was feeling, um, but really didn't go very far into it. So I did the same thing. I went back. He did the transvaginal ultrasound. Well, he was old school. And he drew my ovaries on my chart. Mm-hmm. And he drew them again from two years later. And he goes... I'm not really sure I like the shape of these. Why don't you get some blood work done and come back again the third through fifth day of your period? I'm like, fine, whatever. My my daughters were um, getting ready to start their senior year of high school, and my son was uh, studying for his bar mitzvah, and my husband had just started his own business, and I, I just was really, really busy. And so I finally went and had the blood work done. One of the things that they said in the blood work was CA125, and I didn't know what that was, and I didn't know why they were asking me for that and so before I let them take my blood I I was like how many tubes do you need because I've had too many taken and nearly passed out and I'm not doing that Mm -hmm. oh no it's easy so they took it on a Friday morning did my blood work and on Monday morning my phone rang at 8 30 in the morning and it was my doctor's office they basically said uh your CA 125 is 216 normal is 0 to 35 you need to have a hysterectomy you need to do it this week and you need to come in the office this afternoon at two o'clock and by the way bring your husband and that started my journey towards my my diagnosis of ovarian cancer (laughs) i walked in the office he's like i don't think it's cancer it might be endometriosis but i want you to have a hysterectomy he said, I have a gynec online, a gynecological oncologist on the phone with me. He'll see you tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and we'll get this scheduled. I just want him in the surgery with me just in case there's something weird. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no real concern, no emergency. However, he wanted it done now. So I went to go see this doctor and he did his exam. And he says, well, 
it doesn't feel like cancer. I said, okay. And he said, but I think you need a hysterectomy. Now, let me just say that this was Tuesday before Labor Day. So, you know, everybody goes on vacation for Labor Day. And he says, I, I think you need a hysterectomy. And I said, when? And he said, soon. And I was like, well, how soon? And he said, well, soon. So he wasn't planning to do it that week. And so that gave me the opportunity to have a second opinion, mm-hmm. which I did. I went to another gynecological oncologist, not realizing really that's what he did. And I walked in and that office says oncology. And I'm like, what do you, why did I keep saying oncology? Why did I keep saying cancer? Mm-hmm. No one said, can- no one said, we think you might have cancer. It never came out. So when I saw him, I said, well, this other guy said, you know, that it doesn't feel like cancer. And he said, um, well, I don't know what cancer feels like, but I think you need a hysterectomy. And I said, okay, you know, when? And he said soon. And I was like, well, how soon? And he said soon. That's vague. Okay. <laughs> Very vague. So I started to just kind of get everyone around me. And I knew someone who had ovarian cancer. And I saw her and I asked her, you know, what was your CA 125? And she was like, 220 or something like that. And I'm like, okay. And I knew she had cancer because she was someone who I'd known since I was a little girl, but she also was a librarian at my kid's school. So I'd watched her and I watched her hair fall out and all those kinds of things. And so I looked back at my husband and I go, I'm in trouble. And so I orchestrated everything. We took our daughters to a college visit. We got homecoming out of the way. And I had my hysterectomy and surgery on October 12, 2010. And I'm kind of lucky because I'm in a family of uh, physicians and I have friends whose husbands are, they are themselves physicians. And so I kind of orchestrated everything for myself. And my anesthesiologist happened to be a friend of mine. He was married to one of my friends from growing up and he was so sweet. He did epidural versus putting me all the way under. He's like, this is going to be easier recovery for you. I mean, he was wonderful. So he's the one who came and woke me up Mm -hmm. and I looked at him and I said, is it cancer? And he looked at me and his eyes went big and wide and his face went white. He goes, yeah, it is. I woke up with stage three C ovarian cancer. Gosh. I mean, talk about just, it was like you were blindsided because, you know, based on what you're like, nobody had alluded to that you were, that it was cancer, that they thought that it was cancer all along. No, nobody did. And I never had a scan. The only thing I had was CA-125 and the ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And and so after the surgery was over, I think fortunately my, my gynoc didn't do the medicines anymore, the chemo. So he set me up with a medical oncologist who came to my room and kind of told me what the plan was going to be. And when I went to go see him in the office, I said, I got to know, do I have that gene? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I think you do need to know. Because I'm Ashkenazi Jewish and, you know, my grandmother did have breast cancer and we thought she might have had some sort of ovarian thing earlier before the breast and actually she didn't, she had some, I think, fibroids in her uterus or whatever and they did a hysterectomy uh, because that's what they did in the 50s, but she didn't have ovarian cancer. I got tested for the BRCA gene and I'm BRCA1, which is a good thing because I didn't look at my pathology because I was, I didn't even have the energy or the wherewithal to look at my pathology. And I was afraid of what it said because I was really afraid I was going to die. I had friends who told me how horrible the treatment was. I had friends whose moms told me how horrible the treatment was. And so after it was all, all the way down the line, after I was through with chemo and everything, a couple of years later, I did look at my pathology and they did an assay. On, on the tumors and they basically said that it was going to be that they were going to be platinum resistant mm-hmm. which would mean that 
the chemo wouldn't have worked. But because of the BRCA, the break in the DNA where it was, the chemo seemed to have worked. So I, I, I was very fortunate. Thank goodness. Yeah. And very fortunate. And it's interesting how things have worked out because if you did go back and, you know, read the reports and everything, it might have put you just in a negative mindset to, you know, not have as much faith and hope, you know, and it's already such a huge learning curve. It it really is, you know, and and I knew somebody like whose sister had it and she was like, don't call her because it's been horrible, you know? And so anytime you hear it's horrible, you just assume it's going to be horrible for you too, right? Um, You know, I ended up getting hypnotized to help myself through that piece because I knew I could go to the dark side so easily. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, I think that really helped me keep my head on straight during everything. Now, that's interesting. But, I might have to try that. It was, I'm telling <laughs> you, it was the greatest thing I did for myself. Somebody did a, a fundraiser for me, and he charged, like, I don't know, like $500. And I didn't have it at the time, you know. Um, I was still trying to work full-time, and my husband had just started a job. And it was just kind of, it was very trying. And so with that money, I did the hypnotism. And he, I'm telling you, Every time, even now, when my brain tries to go the wrong way, it pushes my head, my thinking away from it. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Wow. I get, well, he's actually retired, very retired now, I think, but I'll find out if he's still doing it. I'll let you know. Okay. I'll have you hook me up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, for sure. Julie, based on what you've shared, there's just been, you know, it's just been a roller coaster. Has there been a most challenging aspect of your journey? And has there been anything good that you would say that has come out of it? I think that the most challenging part really of the journey was worrying about my kids. Because as I took the treatment and things were okay and I didn't get, you know, I didn't throw up, I didn't get sick, I didn't have any real problems. I had every chemo that, you know, I was supposed to. Um, my big, my biggest fear was that one was recurrence and mm-hmm. two was breast cancer. So those were two things that were challenges for me. For, so worrying about my kids and then, you know, worrying about it coming back or getting breast cancer on top of it. So I had a double mastectomy, which was something that was good because I took that fear of breast cancer from, you know, 80% chance to 10% chance. Mm-hmm. So that was that's been really helpful I've met part of my grandmother's family who actually also have the gene so I really do know that's where it came from Mm -hmm. Uh, my mom was negative so she so we know it didn't come from her so that was that was kind of that's been kind of cool because I've met these cousins I never had although one of them had right before I met them she had died of breast of ovarian cancer but she'd had both Mm. and she was 56 and my kids have, my daughters have found out that they're both BRCA positive. So on the, on the negative side, they're BRCA positive, but on the positive side, they know they're BRCA positive. So they know to be under surveillance and they know what doctors to see and they know what their future looks like. And they really have a great attitude towards all of this. Like we do what we have to do. Mommy did well. They still call me mommy. Uh-huh. Mommy did well. <laughs> and we'll do well. You know, we'll be okay. And they, they both have it. So for them, it's better because it's not just one has it, not the other. Right. Um, and then I started a foundation with three other survivors, which mm-hmm. has given me the opportunity to share my story, to raise money to help women fighting ovarian cancer, to keep people around me who help to make things better. And I can help people to make things better. And, and people connect their friends with me. And sometimes we just offer a little nugget that might help someone through the process. And you know that's kind of been a gift. 
And actually, that is something that I was going to ask you later on, but we can go ahead and get to it because you are co-founder of Be The Difference Foundation. Could you tell us a little bit about how did that all start and what is the mission? So Be The Difference Foundation, it's funny because we came, we, we started from a place where there were three of us who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. I kind of knew these the other two women, Jill and Helen, but I wasn't really friendly with them. Like Helen's sister-in-law and a couple of her sisters-in-law and her brother I was friends with, but she's a little older than me. And Jill's daughter went to camp with my daughter, so I knew who she was, but I really didn't know them. But we all three at different times were exposed to an indoor cycling of event that was taking place in Atlanta. And each of us individually, separate from each other, went to the JCC athletic director and said, we need to do this. We need to tell our story. We need to raise money for ovarian cancer and we need to do it. And we'd love to do it here. And so Helen went to them and then Jill went and then I went. By the time I went, they were like, okay, we're listening. And they said, you know, so they went to the board of the JCC and they said, I think we need to do this. This is, you know, the community these are three Jewish women who have ovarian cancer. This is important for our community to talk about because nobody talks about ovarian cancer. I think we need to do this. And so we did. The goal for this event was to raise $50,000 and to because Helen was being helped a lot by a group called the Clarity Foundation. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to really raise money for them. And so that was kind of the goal. And then Jill and I both were brought the positive. We have daughters and we wanted to make sure that we could share that part of our story and talk about the genetic piece and so together we put together this amazing event and we each brought our strengths to the event and instead of just raising fifty thousand dollars we had 300 participants and raised over three hundred thousand dollars and so we kind of looked at each other and said maybe we have something here and people who supported that event kept reaching out to us saying what else can we do Mm because i was a, a year out from finishing my chemo and jill was three and helen was four and we were like okay we, we need to do something. And we looked at each other and said, let's look at starting our own foundation. And we brought in Lynn Lyncher, who also was a survivor who had been just a great support to me. And together, the four of us started the foundation. And that was in 2012. That's incredible. We, yeah, we've raised and donated over two and a half million dollars to help women fighting ovarian cancer, either through research, through making sure that there's clinical trials here in Dallas, to helping people get to clinical trials, to there's um, some one at UT Southwestern who is looking at an early detection because, as you said earlier, there's no early detection. She's looking at something that has great promise, and so we've been able to support her, and it's been really amazing to be written up in these incredible doctors, researchers, studies, and say, you know, part of their funding was from Be the Difference Foundation. It was started by these four women with ovarian cancer. Sadly, Helen passed away six years ago, but her husband's on our board now, and we just keep pushing towards our goal. Right. Every day. I'm sorry to hear about Helen, but it just, it sounds like it's just with the organization, it really brought the community closer together. And what you're doing is really leaving a legacy for for so many others. So thank you so much for that. And you mentioned the clinical trials. We had talked briefly before this podcast about clinical trials because I have looked into it myself recently. And that's just so important to have that option in addition to standard treatment. Absolutely. Um, And, and, you know, there there weren't specific trials being done here as much as there are now because we make sure that we fund that ability. And so that's been really pretty amazing to just know that part of what we do makes sure that people 
can get to a clinical trial here. Because mm-hmm. I think one of the key things is it, it's just having options and just yeah. finding what the right option is for, for each individual. Yeah, so. that's the truth. Because, you know, as you know, everybody gets the same treatment to start, but not everybody's cancer is the same. I know you talked to Becky the other day. She has a different strain of ovarian cancer than I did and probably different than what you did. And it doesn't mean that one treatment is good for everything and everyone. So Correct. it's really great that there's more than one treatment now. Mm-hmm. And then, and we, our bodies respond differently as well right. to the different treatments. That's so true. Um, so Julie, if we can just go back to, so earlier you had mentioned that the hypnosis has had helped you throughout your journey. Was there anything else that you found helpful with your recovery? It's funny. One of the things that someone said to me before I started chemo when, in the chemo class was to say yes and thank you. You know, we, as women, we typically do everything. We take care of everybody else. We make sure that everything's taken care of and their kids are good. And we look at ourselves last and learning to say yes and thank you was huge for me. So that was really helpful just just to know that I didn't have to make every meal and things like that. But I also went to a Chinese herbalist and he gave me this such hope like he showed me some pictures of someone who had had this terrible cancer and showed me the tumor before and after and honestly I don't know if it really helped but it helped my psyche because I took his little cocktail like two or three days before chemo and of course I asked my doctor if it was okay first but I never got sick and I think that was so helpful whether it was that stuff whether it was the drugs that the doctor gave me before chemo I don't know but whatever it was it helped me to know that I was going to be okay Mm -hmm. and that, that was hugely helpful. One of the other things I did, and this is so funny, you know, you've heard of hair club for men. Mm -hmm. So there was, (laughs) my mom's hairdresser had gone to this place that was like a hair club for men. And so when she told him what was going on with me, he said, I had just told this other woman who had breast cancer to go talk to these people and go and get a wig there. And so I went there and basically they glued this wig on my head. Um, and it was like, it's like, it was Indian hair. I'm blonde. Okay. So it was hair from a woman from India, which was much coarser than mine and much darker than mine, but they dyed it to match my hair color and they cut it. And I would go in every week or so, and they would take it off and clean my scalp, but I never went without hair. And that really helped my son who was having a really hard time with everything when I was sick he had lost a friend to brain cancer the year before so the whole idea of cancer and mom was just not going to work for him and so that it allowed him to see me no I was I didn't look like myself totally but I looked more like myself than I would have if I was walking around bald as much as possible Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, that was really helpful too. And then, you know, I told you about the hypnosis. A couple of times I went to an acupuncturist. I started taking vitamins. I took B complex, mostly B6. Cause uh, I had walked into Whole Foods one day and I was just looking around the, the whole pill department, you know, vitamin department. And this woman just came up to me and said, how can I help you? And I told her and she goes, ah, I just got through with breast cancer. I did this, 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 and this. And I said, okay, <laughs> you look good to me. I'll do it too. So I started taking I still do D3 and now I just take a B complex, but with anything that I could do to keep my immune system up mm-hmm. is what I was hoping for during that process, just so that I wouldn't ever be sick. And I never threw up. One day I was a little nauseous and somebody said, oh, try this sugar ginger. And once I did, I, I every, anytime I'd get queasy, I would take that and it would go away within minutes. Uh-huh. So, okay, it worked. Whether <laughs> it's true or not, my brain says it worked. So I'm going with that. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. Well, I am so glad that it worked for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I'm with you right there too, because I'm also taking supplements throughout treatment because I just want to give my body just a boost to help bounce back and recover as yeah. much as possible. I do think that it makes a big difference. I think so too. So Julie, you've mentioned a lot about, you know, your family with both your girls and your son. If we can go back to that a little bit, how would you say, in addition to the things that you've mentioned already, were there other ways that diagnosis and treatment impacted your family? Yeah, you know, with the girls especially, they've already started surveillance. They, they got on the pill. They were 18. They got, got on the pill right away. They're under surveillance. They know that they have to have their kids by 10 years younger than I was when I was diagnosed, which was, I was 48. So by 38, be done with having their kids or as soon as they are, have hysterectomies. And they're moving forward with being, going to the doctor and surveillance and things like that. And they know that there are options about they want to freeze their eggs or have a prophylactic mastectomy or whatever it is that they need to do. And then my son is 22 now. He's not quite there ready to be tested, but he will also because guess what? He could be the carrier like my dad was. And we want to make sure that he keeps an eye on his prostate and, you know, everything like that. So we have, I think knowledge is power and it's been really helpful to know where we stand. You mm -hmm. know, my brothers, my brothers are both negative for the gene. And so it's kind of nice to know that their kids don't have to worry about this. Mm -hmm. It's brought our family, I think, closer. Mm -hmm. because we're, we we understand it and are here for each other. As hard as it was going through all this, I think it's helped my relationship with my husband because he's stuck with me and I'm stuck with him through the good and the bad. <laughs> and, you know, when you get married, they say for better, for worse, and sickness and health, richer, for poor, and you think, oh, none of that's going to happen to me but the good stuff, and that's not true. So I, it's been a weird blessing. I think a lot of it is our outlook, our perspective, mm -hmm. because you've been through a lot, and you and your family someone can take the information like all doom and gloom like I have this BRCA gene and so forth like it just can be very negative but I think you've set just a wonderful example but also it's more of empowerment like we have this information what can we do to move forward and take right. control of our life it's just a more positive outlook and healthy yeah and and you know I always I always say knowledge is power because as you said empowered we're totally empowered to do what we need to do for ourselves and so I was talking to my daughter, to one of my daughters, and I just was explaining to her that, you know, now there are the opportunities to choose which embryo you want to implant. And, you know, you could choose one and not, and not pass the gene on, you know, kind of be the end of that cycle in our lives. And she said, I, I, would, I don't think I would do that. And I was like, why? And she looked me right in the eye and she said, because if you did, we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. And that was so empowering to me for her and for me, because she doesn't hold me responsible and she doesn't blame me for what she has in her life. She holds me in regard as being this great role model for her and support of her. And so I I feel so bad that I passed this on to them. It, it breaks my heart. And I know that if my dad were alive, he, it would have killed him. And so I'm glad he didn't know that he gave this to me. But the fact that they understand all the pieces of this is so huge. And I think it's so incredibly powerful for them to be able to just know who they are, know what they need know where they where they're going and you know maybe someday we'll be able to repair that mm -hmm. that you know dna you know who knows right yeah we never know and things are moving quickly yes there are there are a lot of advancements mm -hmm. but that i mean that is really incredible julie and just your daughter's outlook that's it's just a, a testament to just how how strong they are so i'm so happy to hear that 
Thank you. Yeah, I feel very blessed to have the family that I have and the support that I have. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't do this by yourself. You need your village. It makes a big difference. Going. Yeah, yeah. So I, so, I definitely can say I, I would not be where I am today without the support that I have. We're lucky. Absolutely. So we'll go ahead and finish with this, Julie. Are there any words of wisdom that you could share with others who are facing a challenging illness like cancer? I think that the most important thing that you can do is advocate for yourself. Know your body. Know that you have a right to have your questions answered. And if you're not comfortable with what you're getting or the information that is being presented to you that you can go talk to somebody else. No one's holding you hostage. And I think a lot of people are afraid to go against their doctor's orders or maybe they think I can only see this one. You know what? Go check it out. You can you make your decision of who's right for you or what treatment is right for you or how you want to live your life because it's your life to live. And you know the way you go about it is in your control through your attitude. And things don't always go your way and it's not always the way you want it to be but if you just keep persevering and collecting the people around you and asking the questions and let other people support you and be there with you you know then that's that's the way you get through stuff like this I, I don't think that it's a thing that you have to keep private I know some people don't like to talk about it but I think if you don't talk about it you fest investors inside of you and if you get it out there then you can get support and you can find out how many opportunities there are for you to, to get better or to find other treatments or whatever it may be I agree with that absolutely so thank you so much for providing that insight from your experience and and also just so much for what you do for others in the community in your advocacy work and I truly appreciate you sharing your story to help educate and empower others. Thank you so much Nee. It was such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I also want to take a moment to thank our listeners for listening, being part of our podcast. Please share our podcast with others that you think would benefit and as always may we empower you, inspire you and spark conversations.